Welcome to MindWorks. This is your host, Daniel Serfati. Welcome back to the special two-part episode on how leadership today goes beyond just setting a vision for the road ahead and a business plan to execute against, but also builds a culture and a mindset that makes business success possible. In part two of my conversation with global thought leaders, Dr. Raj Sisodia and Ms. Kelly Lockwood-Primus, we continue our examination of inclusion, consciousness, diversity, and empathy, and how great leaders put these very lofty, but very feasible and even necessary goals into practice. Dr. Raj Sisodia is a distinguished university professor of conscious enterprise and chairman of the Conscious Enterprise Center at the Tecnológico de Monterrey in Mexico. He's also co-founder of Conscious Capitalism, Inc., and has published 15 books, many of them bestsellers, including the New York Times bestseller, Conscious Capitalism, Liberating the Heroic Spirit of Business, the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Everybody Matters, and his last book, The Healing Organization, Awakening the Conscious of Business to Help Save the World. Dr. Sisodi has consulted with and taught at numerous companies such as AT&T, Verizon, Kraft Food, Whole Foods, Tata, Siemens, Spring, Volvo, Walmart, McDonald's, and IBM. His work is an inspiration to many business leaders around the world today, including yours truly. Kelly Lockwood Primus is Chief Executive Officer of Leading Now, a global consultancy that guides current and future leaders in creating more equitable organizations. As an expert on inclusive leadership and cultural dynamics, Kelly has worked with CEOs and executive leadership from Fortune 500 and global 1000 companies to identify barriers and develop solutions that help change behaviors and company culture. Kelly also shares her knowledge around the world about diversity and inclusion and leadership and how these topics intersect with her own experience as a business person. She doesn't just consult, she actually practices. A thought leader and contributor to Forbes, Kelly harnesses her passion, knowledge and expertise and finds it exciting and personally fulfilling to be guiding businesses on the right course to achieve their culture and diversity goals. Rajan Kelly, welcome back to MindWorks. So every MBA student has been trained to manage by catering to the shareholder, shareholder wealth, or by delighting the customer. Which stakeholders the enterprise should be mostly concerned about these days? The shareholders, as is traditionally in the industrial kind of era, the customer, or the employees themselves, the members of the enterprise. Is there a balance we can achieve? Has this perspective changed in the past 25 years? Who wants to take that on, Raj? You know, I mean, the answer really is all of the above and more. You know, I don't think it makes sense to say we predominantly focus on this stakeholder or that. They all are part of an interconnected interdependent system of value creation. And if we ignore any of them, the system collapses over time. So not only employees and customers who we often liken to the two wings of a bird, right? You don't need to emphasize one over the other. They're both equally vital. Of course, investors matter. But I would expand that uh, circle to include, of course, suppliers, 
who are key in most industries today, suppliers actually represent about 80% of the value that you're providing to your customers, you're acquiring from others. And then we cannot forget the planet. We cannot forget other life forms and society or communities. All of those are important stakeholders. You know, and I think we need to start putting all of them together into this interconnected system. If I had to start with an emphasis, I would say we put life at the center of everything that we do. And life includes people plus planet plus other life forms that we share the planet with. And everything has to serve that. And the people include our customers, it includes our employees, it includes our suppliers, you know, communities, everybody. Ultimately, you know, it's about putting people at the center and life at the center. Whereas in the past, we've put profit at the center. People and communities and other species on the planet and all of them were further down the list and seen as a means to that end. I don't think that mindset is acceptable or even viable anymore. Right, you just made the job of the leader in oh. the case of the business, the job of the CEO, very complicated. Yeah. Much more complex than the one you read in uh, traditional uh, leadership books. Kelly, how do we do that? How do we form these superwomen and supermen to lead the enterprise of tomorrow if life itself should be the focus? You know, I had written down some notes to this question earlier and thought about some great leaders and those who I admire. And I know that we'll get to those a little bit later, but when I was jotting down my notes about what I thought was important today versus, you know, what was in the past, I didn't take it as far as Raj. So Raj, thank you. Every time we have our conversations, you know, I feel like I learned so much more from you and you make me think differently. And I really appreciate that. But the one statement that I wrote down was, this is a tough place to be a CEO. These expectations with all of the things that are going on in the world, with all of the challenges, man, I am so glad I'm not a Fortune 500 CEO right now. I would not want that job. But you are a CEO. Yes, I am. I am a CEO. I do admit that. But the organization is privately owned. I do not have shareholders that I have to answer to. So that makes a big difference, right? It's not a publicly traded stuff. We do, people don't know about it on a daily basis. Nobody's tweeting about us, you know, if we make a mistake somewhere. And frankly, we, as public as we are with our commentary, with the articles we write, all of that, it's not the same, right? It's not the same level of stress that you see Fortune 500 and pretty much anybody running a public company. The challenge for them, I think, is really recognizing that you have to make a commitment and you have to stick to it. And you have to be willing to take the heat that you're going to get from activist shareholders. You're going to have to be willing to take the heat that you're going to get from media who may or may not like the positions you take. But I think Raj, if Raj's concept could be implemented across all business, then ultimately, What you would say as that CEO, right, is that this is what's best for all of us. And if it's best for all of us and we're treating everybody with that in mind, how can I be wrong? How am I not paying attention to the best interests of this business if I do this? So it's kind of like really stepping up in a way that there are so few and far between. CEOs who've made that step, 
And I would love to see it. But well, you know, a, a wonderful illustration of that right now is what Satya Nadella has done at Microsoft. It's an incredible story of taking a company that has been around and has been such a, an established figure right, in our world of business and technology and are pervading all of our lives and dramatically transforming that culture, bringing in a new purpose when the old purpose had become obsolete in a way. You know, when Bill Gates said, we want to put a computer on every desk mm-hmm. running some kind of Microsoft software. Well, that kind of happened in the developed world. Under Steve Ballmer, for the next 14 years, there was no purpose. It was only profits and revenues. And the culture became even more toxic. And the company dramatically underperformed and became increasingly irrelevant. You know, people described it as a threatened kingdom. It's kind of on its way out. Adela comes along and completely rejuvenates the company by focusing on the purpose and creating a new purpose developing a much better strategy. So those are all essential elements, whether you're a conscious business or not. But then very importantly, focusing on culture and leadership and bringing in a culture of empathy and a growth mindset, which were the opposite of what the company had before. It was an arrogant, kind of a highly hyper-competitive internal culture with a bunch of experts, right? Uh, You know, with an expert mindset, modeling vulnerability and authenticity and his own leadership and transforming the whole mode of what leadership means is to model, to coach, and to care for people. And if you look at the impact of all of this, first of all, it's astounding to me that a 180,000-person company can be changed so significantly in literally a matter of two or three years. There was a fundamental shift that happened in that culture. And then if you look at how the company has done, it was $300 billion in market cap when he started in 2014. It reached about $2.7 trillion a few months ago before this recent downturn, right? I mean, he created over two and a half, almost two and a half trillion dollars of incremental market value in less than eight years. That record has never been achieved. But at the same time, employee engagement is in the 90s. The approval of the CEO is in 99%. They lead in terms of sustainability, in terms of diversity and inclusion, in terms of the future of work on every dimension and every stakeholder. They are yeah. performing at an extremely high level. Right? So you see the magic of all of these things coming together in a profound way, I think, in that you know, live case study that's going on before us. So that's a good example. That's a superb example, actually. I wish we had more of those of doing good by doing well, basically, or doing right. well by doing good. I'm glad you brought one personality like Nadella that, as much as I want to give him credit, I think probably the terrain was already primed to have such a leader. In a sense, perhaps he found a fertile terrain to start making those changes, perhaps because of the toxic culture that pre-existed his leadership. Well, yeah, it's one way to look at it. I mean, yeah, it was a toxic culture and therefore the opportunity to do something. But by the same token, a deeply entrenched toxic culture can be very hard to change. You know, So it was not an easy... Thing. Uh, it was him and the uh, chief people officer, Kathleen Hogan, who really partnered. And I'm seeing that increasingly now, that partnership between the CEO and the chief people officer is mm-hmm. a critical one because that Absolutely. is what helps to shape the culture. And, and the CEO takes ownership of the culture right, in partnership with, with the people organization. It's really astounding, that whole transformation that has happened. So... Raj shared with us, you know, one example of a leader. You said that you thought about it, Kelly. Perhaps you can share maybe another example different from Nadella. 
at Microsoft that you admire, either from the past or from another domain? It was a toss-up. That question you would ask, success versus failures of leadership. And I struggled with which one I wanted to use as an example. So I'm going to give you three. And I'm going to make it really fast. The first one, success, is Marriott. And his name is escaping me because I didn't write it down. So sorry about that. But he always said, put your employees first and they'll take care of the business. And Marriott, when COVID hit and all of the hotels went through, all kinds of crazy. He was one of the first ones to step up and say, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. And we're going to take care of our people. And as a result, their business rebounded faster, I think, than pretty much any other hospitality chain post-COVID because of how he treated his people. So I believe, you know, he follows the same mindset, Raj, that you were talking about. But then there's two other massive failures of organizations. And it wasn't necessarily because of current events. They were failures that happened in the past because they were too busy chasing profits and being less concerned with what was happening in their industry. And as a result, they were so afraid of risk, risking their profits, making their shareholders unhappy that they drove their companies right into the ground. And the very simple examples, Polaroid and Blockbuster. Polaroid in 1989 had 42% of their R&D budget in digital imaging. And they were afraid to pull the trigger because they felt that no one would be comfortable not touching the photography. The business tanked, and yet they were the leader in digital imaging. But they were so risk-averse to cannibalizing their profits by going and including and incorporating digital that they absolutely drove the company into the ground within just a couple of years. And then the second one, Blockbuster, we all remember, because we are that age generation, going to Blockbuster to get a video, rent it for the weekend or whatever. And the whole idea of Netflix and no one's going to want to stream and everybody's going to want to do it this way. And they all have these machines in their house and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it was a short, short windows. We're talking like three years of their term where the company's doing this and it just goes nosedive. So chasing profits alone, I think there's probably hundreds of examples of organizations that only focused on shareholders and focused on profitability and focused on the almighty dollar and quarterly results as opposed to long-term and ended up in this place. So Raj, I really think that you've hit it on the head that as challenging as boards of directors can be and as demanding as shareholders can be for profits and so forth, CEOs have got to help drive change. And I think the boards of public companies have got to step back and say, okay, you know what? Maybe it isn't only about this small group of people who are making millions off this company. Thank you for those examples on both sides of fence, actually, for both of you. And I wonder whether or not, you know, great leaders, like in politics, when sometimes we say great leaders in wartime become terrible leaders in peacetime and vice versa. In a sense, it's the same or it's similar for enterprises where CEOs that are in touch with the zeitgeist, 
the mindset of the current moment succeed much more than those that are still operating in optimizing something that got them successful, like profit, right. like shareholder wealth. I remember that the famous book, probably one of the most successful business books ever, In Search of Excellence, which was published, was yeah. that, 82, 83, something like that, and became a, an amazing bestseller, giving a list of all those companies that were doing wonders. And somebody did an analysis 15 years later about what happened to those companies, and it was not a pretty picture. What got those companies into that very elite list, the leadership not changing, not understanding that the environment has changed, drove those companies into the ground or worse. So perhaps as a way to look at this notion of the the adaptive leader, the leader that is in touch with not only what is, but what will be in their environment and their larger environment, not just their company environment, but their larger societal environment. Looking back, you know, after two and a half years of leadership during the COVID pandemic, have some leadership competencies or dimensions been emerging as being more important than others? From what you have witnessed, what you've read, what you see, did that particular global traumatic event change the way we look at leadership? What is the one or two dimension that you think should be or have been emphasized? So I would say that agility, the ability to pivot quickly, the ability to set aside plans that we have made before and adapt rapidly, I think that is certainly something that has come to the forefront during the pandemic. Many companies have accomplished within weeks what they thought might normally take years. And so we have shown that ability, and I think that agility is going to serve us well in the future because there'll be only more of these kinds of situations. I think the other side of it really is genuine empathy and caring for people. As Kelly pointed out, the Marriott example, I mean, all the companies that I have seen during the pandemic that have really emerged in a way stronger culturally are the ones that stood by their people. And, you know, a lot of companies did, I would have to say, you know, it was it was quite a widespread story in that sense. So I think empathy and agility and empathy for all the lives, you know, are impacted by these kinds of things, customers, employees, of course, communities, et cetera, I think. Those things really mattered a great deal in this time, and they will continue to matter. Kelly, this is an important question, and I'm sure our yeah. audience is really curious about. You want to add or to reinforce or to add to what? Yeah, yeah. So I absolutely agree. Empathy, adaptability, flexibility, agility, resilience—all of that critical, critical skill sets that leaders needed to be demonstrating, like instantly. What I found really interesting was the amount of changes that companies were able to implement in such a short window of time when people had been talking about right flexible working for years it was a Richard Branson was a big advocate of this years before covid but everybody was so risk averse right totally risk averse for doing anything that changed the way we worked with our employees and yet when that happened and they didn't have a choice it was amazing how quickly they were able to implement change. So I absolutely agree. The agility, the ability to lessen your version of risk, to allow yourself to make some hard decisions. That was absolutely critical at the very beginning. But what I think is also really important to note from leadership competencies was those leaders that were successful 
engaged in conversation and ideas and different opinions and perspectives that they wouldn't necessarily have done prior. I don't have an answer. We've never faced this before. What do you think? What do you know? What is your idea? By being open to and expanding who you ask those questions of to get more ideas because we needed to move quickly. I think this entire notion of inclusivity by leaders, not just of, you know, that circle of trust, those people that you normally would go after, not just your C-suite team, but really digging in and getting perspectives across the organization that they didn't do before. And then weighing those perspectives and saying, hey, that's something we're not even thinking about. It was critical to success. And I think that it's something that we see continuing because it allowed for rapid response. Many organizations actually doing better during insanity. I use the CEO of Best Buy as a fabulous example because she created the idea of curbside service from a retail perspective that didn't exist before COVID. And Best Buy's profits during COVID, you would have thought, like most retailers, would have dropped significantly. But because they thought about it a different way and embraced the different opinions and ideas and sought out the thoughts of others, allowed them to pivot and come up with this idea. Brilliant. And her company, it's taken off since then. So I really think inclusive leadership on top of empathy and so forth, but really honing in on and getting the perspectives of others has really made a difference. And I hope it will drive more towards, you know, the Microsoft example that you led with earlier. It's interesting, this notion of inclusion and inclusivity. You know, people usually misunderstand that by having a more diverse demographics into the company. But in that particular case, you say you tap onto the opinions and expertise of others. Do you think this is a quality that's going to remain? It's almost like we discovered that we can ask our employees or our suppliers for how to run the business better. <laughs> well, I certainly hope that's so. going to continue? I certainly hope so. I think that when you can continue to show success from leaders who act this way, I think it's something that will continue to grow as a mindset. You see activist shareholders saying things like, we want more diversity and inclusion within our boards. We are looking for more perspectives and different things because the models are all there, right? The research is all there that says, when you do this, you will have better performance. And I think nothing could have been stronger than sort of this microscope we were all under during COVID because everything that possibly could have hit us hit us all at once. And those organizations that were successful demonstrated that inclusivity was important to them. And so, yes, I want to say during times of crisis, that is something that happens. But I think most organizations are recognizing somewhere along the way that if they want to continue that success, they can't ignore it. There can't be this, what they call it, a DEI recession. That's something that's being touted out there right now is how much energy, when and if whatever happens economically to 
business in the next six months? Will there be a recession of this? And I think that that's probably the wrong thing to do. What you really need to do is go all in because all in is going to get you Microsoft and Best Buy and Marriott and all the rest of them. So personally, that's my opinion. I think the inclusive leadership absolutely is here to stay. And if it isn't, then you're going to find yourself on the losing end of business success. Yes, that's good. And I wonder the degree to which, if you look at it upside down, in a sense, future employees that are entering, that are changing jobs, are expecting that now. It's yes. part of the expectation. I will be asked by the leaders about my opinion about which market should we go after, or what do we do about the product, yeah. or how do we treat that customer. So there's that mutual expectation yeah. that is, uh, it will be fascinating to watch over the next few years whether or not the leaders of tomorrow will be able to sustain that, even in times of no crisis. So Right, exactly. And it is a challenging situation. There are entire generations in the workforce who are basically saying, if I'm not being included and you're not asking for me to be a part of these conversations, I'm going elsewhere. And I you know, jotted down a thought that I read this morning, which also made me like have a hiccup. 11 million new jobs were added in July and 4 million people quit in the United States in July. Those 4 million made it clear what they value. So I don't know how this is going to end up in a recession. I don't know what any of this is going to look like. But if we keep adding millions and millions of jobs every month and people feel comfortable quitting the job they have because they don't like the environment or the culture right, of the company, it's toxic, it's not treating me fairly. As if we didn't make the job of the leader hard enough. (laughs) Raj, what do you think of that? One of the consequences, basically, Maybe it's an alignment of the star, COVID, work from home, a new demographics entering the workspace, new expectation, new values, as such that lateral moves, basically, or what people call the great resignation or the example that Kelly just gave us of people changing jobs at a pace that is faster than it has been so far. To what degree does it change the very nature of how we lead our workforce? Well, I think it's a very positive trend. If you look at the data over the last 40 years, we've seen that worker pay has been flat. Executive pay has gone up a thousand percent. So our system is not creating widespread prosperity, nor is it giving meaning and purpose to people. And when you have neither of those two things, you're kind of stuck in a rut for a while, but this pandemic kind of shook you out of that and say, my God, what am I doing with this life, right? So I think it's high time that companies have to focus on those things. And of course, like all of these things, when you do the right thing and provide people meaning and purpose and dignity and not just a living wage, but a a thriving wage, ideally, then what you find is that the business benefits are enormous. It's not just a net cost that's going to go up. You're actually going to have more engaged people that are more innovative, more creative, more caring. All of those things happen when people feel that sense of belonging, that sense of purpose, that sense of psychological safety, et cetera. So I think that is a positive thing. We have to, in a way, treat our employees like customers. And interestingly, I was just listening to a podcast from somebody at Amazon. Amazon is famous for their customer obsession, right? World's most customer-friendly company. It is extraordinary as a customer how much convenience they have brought to our lives. But they recently said that they have identified the new customer group as employees. 
are going to treat their employees like customers. And if you think about it, it's really true. You know, I wrote about this in an academic paper years ago, but we should treat our employees like customers in a sense that they have a choice. There is a value exchange that is happening. They can go elsewhere, same as customers. And by the same token, we should think about treating our customers to some degree like employees in the sense of having loyal customers who stick around for a long time. We invest in them. They serve as our sort of informal ambassadors and salespeople, you know, when they're happy customers with word of mouth, et cetera. So anyway, these boundaries are blurring. Everybody wants to be treated as though they matter and their well-being matters. And I think when we do that in companies, there are many positive things that flow from that. You know, the phrase we use is everybody matters and everybody needs to win in the business, the way in which we're running our business. And that means down to the part-time person and the front line, you know, all the way up the line, everybody should be doing well, right? And have an opportunity to evolve and progress through the organization. And that's not the norm by any means in most companies. There's a lot of dead end and meaningless work that is still out there. It is. And people have been talking about quiet quitting. I've been seeing more and more of those words in the literature over the past couple of months about basically employees not leaving the company, but redesigning their job locally while continuing to work there. Doing yeah, exactly I, yeah. That. And the smart companies are getting ahead of that. Unilever is a great example where they're innovating tremendously in terms of the future of work. They are enabling people. First of all, they are offering a purpose workshop to every one of their 160,000 employees. What is that? A workshop to discover your own unique purpose and your core values. And then once they come out of that workshop, they're helping those employees align what they do and their own personal purpose with the company's purpose, right? And recraft their work to some extent. And you're seeing the data coming out of the employees who have been through that, but I think 60,000 have gone through that workshop already. Their numbers in terms of their innovation, their productivity, you know, their loyalty, you know, turnover going down, et cetera, all of those things are tremendous. Unilever is also enabling people to create a portfolio of work. So you can say, I'll spend 50% of my time in the job, and then the rest of that time, I'll be like a gig employee. I, I know I'll, I'll do 20% over here because I also enjoy, I don't want to be an accountant 40 hours a week. I'll do that for 20 hours, but then I also want to do these other kinds of things which I enjoy and I think I'm good at. So they're enabling all of that at scale, right? While committing to a living wage, they already, they've been doing a living wage for the last eight years, seven, eight years worldwide in 180 countries. And now they're requiring all of their suppliers to do that by 2030 and they're helping them get there. So that's the kind of forward-looking, human-centered approach that these kinds of companies are taking that really makes a difference. Not only financially, all these companies outperform their industries, but also, I think, even more importantly, I think, in terms of the well-being of people. I wonder a lot of the examples we just heard about, both from uh, you, Raj, and Kelly, are large companies. And our companies, you know, 150,000 employees. And I wonder the degree to which, you know, most people don't work in those companies. Most people work in small to medium-sized businesses. And I wonder the degree to which those lessons of leadership can be applied for small businesses, whether they are in the you know, advanced technology area or just regular service businesses. Are those lessons applicable on a smaller scale? Absolutely. You know, I've written uh, in the healing organization, 25 stories. Many of them are very small companies. So we have small and we have mid-size and then we have the large examples like I gave you. So mid-size would be a company like Fifco in Costa Rica, which produces soft drinks and beer and has some hotels. 
And they have undergone a dramatic transformation on every dimension of the business under their CEO, Ramon Mendiola. He came in in 2002, so it's been about 20 years. So the company has grown about tenfold. They have become the most admired company in Costa Rica. They are the most environmentally sustainable. They have the world's first carbon positive, or water, rather water positive beer. They're moving towards carbon positive and solid waste on all of those dimensions. That not only are they doing less harm, they're actually doing good. They're very purposeful. They have some of the highest levels of employee engagement. They have reduced drunk driving in the country. They have reduced obesity by cutting sugar 50% in their soft drinks. You know, so they've done all of these things, right? So again, purpose, taking care of all stakeholders, aligning with society, changing the definition of leadership and creating a compelling culture. In terms of small companies, one of the companies I wrote about is this Ram Construction, which is a small construction company in Bellingham, Washington, started by two guys who had worked in construction. And there's a very kind of a brutal culture that exists within construction where people are treated very roughly and uh, you know there's no caring, et cetera. And they decided to quit and start their own construction company. There are only two criteria in that company, two values, kindness and safety. Okay. You know, we have to keep each other safe and you have to treat each other with kindness. And if you don't, then that will get you fired. Other mistakes will not get you fired, but not being kind will. And it's a small company, but now they're winning so many contracts from the city of Bellingham, et cetera. Everybody wants to come and work for these guys and not for the traditional, because people are people, right? Regardless of whether you're in a large company or small company, and regardless of even where you are geographically in the world, these are universal human desires and aspirations. And if we can meet that, it will make a difference. Because ultimately, it is people who make a difference in any business. Kelly, do you agree? I am interested. I mean, you advise leaders of all kinds of companies, small and large. And a lot of the insight you provided over the past hour regarding those new qualities of the leaders do leaders of small enterprises, can they afford basically to change in those directions? Or can they afford not to? They can't afford not to. They cannot afford not to. You know, some of the things that larger companies or mid-range and larger companies are attempting to do if they aren't Microsoft, if they haven't created that culture that engages employees, they're using all of the tactical things there. They're looking at raising salaries. They're looking at adding more time off, which I always laugh at because no one ever gets to take it. All of these things, all of these benefits that they keep saying are the things that are going to hold on to their and retain their employees. Okay, living wages, completely understand. But for most organizations, there is a point at which you can no longer add more things and you have to be that empathetic leader. You have to attach to your culture the values that you bring, and you have to start learning how to make it so people want to work with you, create the cultures that you want, because ultimately, as a small or medium business owner, public or private, you aren't going to be able to do what the Googles and the Facebooks and the Microsofts are able to do from a employee compensation package. You just can't do it. So then the question becomes, if you value the people that you have and you want to keep them, what are you going to do differently? And really, the only thing you can do is create a culture that makes them want to work there and to have 
stated values that as this company in Costa Rica, right, or the one that Raj mentioned out in Washington said, there are only two things that are important here. Treat everybody with kindness and keep everybody safe. That's what they've built. Now people have that become more open to valuing that post-COVID. And I think that that, to me, means that small and medium businesses have actually a better opportunity than some of the really large ones. Because where Microsoft may have been able to change their culture rapidly for something of that size, most of the really large companies aren't getting there. And so places people can go and feel welcome and included need to have the cultures that are important to them. So I think that small and medium businesses have a delightful opportunity right now to bring on some really amazing people because of what they can do differently, more rapidly than some of the larger organizations who can't get out of their own way. It's going to take them a really long time unless they have a CEO like Microsoft does. And I think that that's a key point, you know, because if you try to change the culture in an environment where the CEO has a persona and a way of being that is the opposite of that culture that they're saying we, we should have, it's not going to work. So the macrocosm is a reflection of the microcosm. And the CEO has to be a living embodiment. Right. Sure, we're talking about. When those two are not in harmony, you know, it just feels like a tactical thing that you're doing and it's not authentic and people... Oh, totally. But totally. when it's coming from your very being, this yeah. is who you are as well, and everybody can see that. Then two things happen. You know, when Bill Gates was CEO, everybody wanted to be a mini Bill, right? And he would yell and scream and say, oh, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard. And that's down the chain. Everybody would be saying that to other people. That's the stupidest thing I ever heard. That becomes a culture. But when you see Satya Nadella acting with kindness and vulnerability, you know, and empathy and openness and all of that, you know, that kind of became the way, you know, that the company started operating in many ways too. So there has to be alignment between those two things. You're absolutely right, Raj. And I will share, I just published another article with Forbes, was about all of the pledges that CEOs of major organizations made during the summer of 2020, right? Mm -hmm. About all of the things that they wanted to do with regard to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and how most of those organizations have done zero, have zero changes within them. Because they made the statement, because they were told that was the optical thing to do. And then they either tossed it over to HR to deal with or didn't toss it to anybody and just said, no, we as an organization, we're going to do this. It's so inauthentic, right? And it's absolutely going to be their downfall. I absolutely agree. If you can't get the leaders of the large organizations who are making these random statements about, you know, how much they care and they do absolutely nothing to change that, then How inauthentic is that? And so when you look at transparency and the willingness to take a position and then act on it. So there's sort of like three pieces in there, right? You've got to be willing to open your mouth and say what you believe. Then you have got to take action on it and then you'll get the results. But if you don't and you make some statement, right, that's this CEO persona, nobody's going to believe you. Thank you so much, both of you, for these extremely valuable insights. And I think this notion of authenticity really encapsulates quite a bit of what we've seen during the past three years or two and a half years, uh, the 
premium on authenticity that allows you not only to know yourself as a leader, to express yourself as a leader, to make promises or commitments, but also to execute that. Anything short of that, everybody can see through it and you suffer the results. So I'm going to ask you as a way to conclude for one minute each uh, piece of advice. There are people in our audience, imagine a young professional, maybe a 25-year-old computer scientist, and she is listening to us and say, one day I want to become a leader or a young accountant who himself would like to become the head of his firm one day. What is your one-minute advice? And I'm sorry to limit that to one minute because I know you have much more that you will give to that person, either one of those two people, so that they can prepare themselves to be one day a leader of the kind that you have described over the past hour. One minute each. I can start if you like. Uh, I think the first question I would ask myself is, why do I aspire to be a leader? Is it because of the perks and the power that goes along with leadership in our mind? Or is it because I want to serve at a higher level? I want to have a positive impact on the lives of other people. You know, a leader who looks at other people as a way of achieving personal goals is not a leader. That's a tyrant. A true leader is there to take people to a better place. So understand why you want to be a leader and then recognize that in order to be that leader, you have to actually go within. You have to look within yourself and understand who you are. So self-awareness and cultivating your emotional intelligence, spiritual intelligence, understanding meaning and purpose in your life, and systems intelligence, how everything works together, how everything is part of this interconnected, interdependent system is very critical. And so then you have to, I say, awaken yourself, be on that journey, awakening to your purpose, to becoming whole, right? Integrating the masculine and feminine sides that all of us have and healing yourself. If you are carrying wounds and traumas, and every one of us is, and if you don't actually try to identify those and work on those and heal those, you will inflict suffering on the people you lead. But the more you heal yourself, the more you will be a positive, loving, healing influence on the lives of the people you lead. Thank you, Raj. Kelly? I'm not sure I can follow that up with anything that would be nearly as impressive. So thank you for that. I would take just one small thought along the way. Watch the leaders in the organizations that you admire and watch those that you do not. And recognize the actions that they're taking, the behaviors that they have, the decisions that they make for those that you admire and figure out how to make sure you're thinking of them in every decision that you make. Because we've all had crappy bosses through our career. There's always been at least one or two bosses that we're like, I never want to be like that person. Both will frame who you become, but try to emulate those that you admire the most for how they treat others. Kelly Primus, Rashi Sodia, thank you so much for those two sessions that were so illuminating. I learned a lot personally from it, and I'm a student of leadership, and you gave me a lot of insight and ideas, and I'm sure it is the same for our audience. I hope to see you maybe in a couple of years to revise again our insight into what makes great leaders. Thank you again, and we'll see you soon. Thank you so much, Raj. Thank, thank you, you thank Danielle, you. for inviting me. 
Thank you for listening to MindWorks. This is Danielle Serfati. Please join me again for the next episode. We welcome your comments and feedback, as well as your suggestions for future topics and guests. We love to hear from you. You can tweet us at MindWorks Podcast or email us at mindworkspodcast at gmail.com. MindWorks is a production of Aptima Incorporated. My executive producer is Ms. Deborah McNeely, and my audio editor is Ms. Lindsay Howland. To learn more and to find links mentioned in this episode, please visit aptima.com slash mindworks. Thank you.